When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We're talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. If you're listening to my show, you're looking for tips on how to work smarter, not harder. And let's be real. You're already working hard to earn your money. But how do you make sure that your money is working hard for you? Here's how. With a Betterment automated investment and savings app, your money will go to work They've got technology that will provide you with advanced tools, and they're built to help maximize your returns, not to mention your time. They have expert-built portfolios of low-cost exchange-traded funds. You know I love those exchange-traded funds. There's automated investing technology, and as part of that, automated rebalancing. Many of you have been asking about rebalancing, and it sort of feels like a hard thing to do on your own. With Betterment, easy peasy. They do it for you. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Sunday, April 18th. And this weekend, We are re-airing an interview that we conducted with journalist and author Diana Henriquez. She wrote the book about Bernie Madoff. And if you didn't listen to yesterday's episode, please do so. If you're not familiar with the story, Bernie Madoff was the biggest Ponzi schemer since maybe Charles Ponzi himself. He died during the week at age 82. He had served a decade of his 150-year sentence. And, uh, you know, at this point, it was considered a $65 billion Ponzi scheme. $14 billion was actually recovered through the legal process and the trustee process. So a lot of people who thought they lost everything did get a bunch of money back. That is good. Anyway, in this second part of our interview with Diana, we discuss with her how her book was adapted to an HBO movie and whether or not she thought Madoff was capable of having remorse. I found that to be quite interesting. And so if you get a chance after you listen to this interview, go check out either her book, which is fantastic, The Wizard of Lies, or head over to HBO because you can still watch that movie, The Wizard of Lies. Okay, here is part two of our interview with Diana Henriquez. The book is a smashing success. Fantastic. 2011. Now tell me how this happens. Like, do you get a call one day and they say, hi, I'm from HBO. Like, what happens? <laughs> I need to know this. You need to know. Because uh, well, like, you're, was... you're such like a, yeah. first of all, you, you know, I, I adore you. And the, from the moment I met you, I adored you. But Ditto back here. In, t- in 2000, whatever it was, 11. Yeah. But what happened? Well, um, my literary agent had the wisdom to consult um, a, an agent here in, the, in New York whose job it is to market print products to people who make films. Um, or TV shows. And so she consulted him before the book was finished. And he said, sure, I'll take it on. The first big uh, bite of interest he got was from Tribeca Films, which is Robert De Niro's production company here in New York, from his uh, longtime partner, Jane Rosenthal. She read the book. She loved the book. She arranged the most surreal telephone call with my film agent, the film you know, marketing agent, Jane, 
myself, and calling in from a remote location, Robert De Niro. Stop it. Yep. So he gets on the phone. We're all waiting. He's a little late. We're chit-chatting about what play we just saw or what we just read. He gets on the phone, and he says, Diana? I said, said, yes, Mr. De Niro. And he said, Diana, I am Bernie Madoff. And my film agent is saying, yes, 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 (laughs) you know, pumping his, his fists in the air. On the strength of that intense interest from Tribeca, they took it to HBO. Uh-huh. Um, they sort of took on the marketing of it, looking for someone to team up with them to make this film. So I'm going down to uh, Washington, D.C. I'm on the uh, board and a proud alumna, alumna of the George Washington University. So I'm going down for a university board meeting in the spring of 2011. The book is just out. And... I get a phone call on my cell phone. I'm standing on the traffic circle in front of Union Station in the dark in, in D.C., and my film agent is trying to explain to me this deal that HBO has just offered us. The arrangement has been terrific. It's been a wonderful working relationship. I was officially a consultant to HBO, and I thought, Joe, I'll, I'll be honest, I thought that was the kind of thing they gave the authors to pat them on the, the head and nice say, job, go sweetie. away, go away, don't bother us anymore. Right. Quite the opposite. Uh, I was uh, deeply consulted about the script construction. I was deeply consulted about production details. Every time I had a concern, my input was respected and taken seriously. It couldn't have been a happier um, relationship, really. And the faithfulness with which HBO treated my book uh, defies all of the horror stories my friends have brought back from this experience. So I may be the only happy adapted author in the country. And also, excuse me, a star in her own right. Well, that was the biggest surprise. I mean, it was late in the script evolution when the character Diana Henriquez shows up in the script. So what? Wow. So then there's a couple of months where we're having fun dinner table conversations. Who's going to play right. me in and the who movie? Did you, who did you want to play? Oh, yeah. of course, Meryl Streep, if she was possibly available. <laughs> uh, I would have settled for Joan Allen. I had lots of people. You in had mind. a list. But in June of 2015, as production is approaching in the fall, I was asked by Tribeca if I would meet with um, Bob for coffee. Well, no, I first didn't have time. You, first of all, you're calling. Him, Bob. He asked me to. Oh, my God. So I was so I, awesome. They asked if I could um, meet with him for coffee uh, to talk about Bernie. Um, he's in the process now of, of building this character in his mind. So we met. We talked for almost three hours. Um, he's just a vacuum cleaner. Every detail I could remember, details I hadn't remembered, I remembered, mm. um, he pulled out of me. And... So I left. This was in the restaurant of the Four Seasons Hotel here in Manhattan. And I left out on the sidewalk with this, you know, well, there's my 15 minutes of, of magic, right? You know, I've had coffee with Robert De Niro. And about a month later, my husband and I are at a farmer's market near our little place in Vermont. Phone rings, and it's Tribeca. Would I consider playing myself? If I mean, if I could pass the screen test. I I thought it was a joke call. I really did. I thought it was a prank uh, because my husband had been saying all summer, oh, you should play yourself. So I figured he'd put somebody up to this. But um, I, I said, are you serious? I said, yes. So I, I flew back from Vermont to New York for a screen test. How was that? Well, it's a little weird, Jill, to uh, to audition to see if you can convincingly play yourself. <laughs> 
You know, can I, you find I, that I, character? You know, can you? And I figured if I flunked the screen test, I was going directly to a shrink. Yeah, I mean, okay. that would be the only other alternative. Indeed. So um, I read the scene that they'd asked me to prepare with the casting director, Alan Chenoweth, and Barry Levinson, the director, was was sitting on the couch in the little office where we were doing this. We did the scene a couple of times, um, and I I gave him some input. I said, you know, the script, I'm doing the script as written, but I said, I would never be quite this confrontational with Bernie in yeah. these early questions. He said, really? I said, no, it's, it, you know, you're trying to put him at ease. I'm kind of coming in with both guns blazing in this script. And he said, well, just ask them the way you would ask them then. So I did. I rephrased them, soft them, softened them a little. And, and we did the scene a few more times. And they said, well, thanks very much. We'll be in touch. You know, every you know, budding actor in New York has heard that line. And then, like the lucky actress, I got the coveted callback. They had sent the video um, to De Niro, and he wanted to read the scene with me. So I went back a this day or two so later. Surreal. I know. I mean, it's oh. like unbelievable and mind blowing. So there I am, back in the same little office, Levinson on the same casting room couch, but knee to knee with me on two plastic chairs is uh, Robert De Niro, and the video is running, and we started the same scene. Now revised, we started the scene, and I mean. He, Imagine he's sitting there. He's got his baseball cap down to his eyebrows. He's got three days of, of stubble. He's in an unpressed canvas shirt and and chinos, and he and he doesn't even look like Robert De Niro, much less Bernie Madoff. And as he started to do his lines, his face just transformed. Mm. I, he, I could just visually see him drop into the Madoff persona right in front of me. That's wild. It was wild. We did the scene, one take, and they all got up. They're chit-chatting. They're shaking hands, backpacking, everything. I'm sitting there. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> so uh, I finally I kind of put my hand up, and I said, you know, I don't get any champagne when I go home unless I know how this turned out. Love that. So De Niro leaned over and patted my knee. He said, don't worry, kid. You got the part. <laughs> Wow. So that was my entree into this world of making a picture. It's amazing. It That's totally great. great and and by the way, you're fabulous in it. Oh, you really are. Thank you you, you, very you much. play yourself incredibly well. Listen, it is daunting. Yes, you are yourself, but all of a sudden you put cameras on somebody yeah. and it's a little bit weird. Well, you know, I think Jill, this is where um the experiences of early journalism served me well. I started out when tape recorders were the size of suitcases and so I just would never rely on them for notes. Well, I get down to the prison in Butner and they don't allow tape recorders so it's just me and a notepad. And in those circumstances um, you have to focus so intensely. You have to be able to filter out any distractions and just act like a movie camera. You have to take in every detail of this person you're interviewing. And when I was on set uh, with De Niro across the table in this in incredible replica they've done of the visiting room, I pulled out that same focus. I, I tried to, to recreate that sense of being just intensely focused on him and filtering out the camera that's almost at my earlobe, you know, all the, the production crew that's all around um, as just some so many distractions. So as the scene started to unfold, 
that was not the hardest part. The hardest part really was um, dealing with the demands of a production. You know, all those 200 people whose names you see at the end of the movie, I know what they do now. (laughs) Um, I I really do. I mean, it it is such an elaborate collaboration um, with scenes being rewritten the night before and and the the wardrobe design and the... Did you get to wear your own clothes? I did wear my own clothes, but with this caveat, I took in to the wardrobe mistress what I had worn to Butner and, you know, what I planned to propose as my costume for this uh, event. And one of them was a, a black suit with a, a royal blue uh, t-shirt under it. Standard for me. You know, every journalist has her black pantsuit. And she said, no, no, we can't do that. I said, what? She said, no, no, blue is Bernie's color. She had a whole palette of of colors arranged for each of the major characters. Oh, wow. And I I was stunned at that artistry. I've worked with great writers. I have worked with magnificent editors and fabulous photographers. And I I have seen that kind of artistry up close. I know how that works. I have never seen artistry taking the form of a props master who notices if you take a sip out of a water bottle on on the table and instantly refills it to that level so that the continuity won't be screwed up when they film it. So I was like a kid in a candy store as a journalist, being behind the scenes, seeing all of these incredible artists in every form. But it was far more time-consuming, elaborate, complex than I had ever imagined. I wouldn't have missed it for the world, though. Before we finish up, is Bernie Madoff capable of having remorse for this or for his, I mean, even just that both sons have now yes. died. It's horrible. I I think um, that was the one thing about this that really shocked him was how uh, the world turned on his family. And, you know, uh, traditionally, that was quite a departure from history. I mean, that white collar criminals families are almost always left alone mm. by the media and everybody else. So this was a real uh, uh, aberration um, I think to the extent that he is able to feel remorse, it is for the fact that he has utterly destroyed his family. A brother in jail, two sons dead, a wife estranged, uh, just completely destroyed a family that he loved. The only argument that you can make that Bernie Madoff isn't a sociopath is that he did apparently love his family. But I noticed over time, Jill, that his attitude towards the investors he had hurt the lives he had destroyed, thousands and thousands of lives, kids who had to drop out of college, family homes that had to be sold, charities that had to close their doors, as you know. Over the months and the years that we've stayed in touch, I have seen his um, pretense of remorse, if that's what it was, or his ability to express remorse about that damage just evaporate. Really? he, He is now kind of at the point where he thinks... They still should be grateful for all he did for them back mm. back in the day. So th- I don't know if that's how he's protecting himself from the bottomless grief over over his family, or if, as he has said to me, and as is said by Bernie Madoff in quotes in the film, he has this capacity to compartmentalize his life in such rigid ways 
that that there is a dike that's holding back that family remorse. Mm. And the only way he can keep that dike big and strong um, is to sustain this coldness towards his other victims. Are you in touch with him still? Not frequently, but uh, occasionally. I got a letter from him just a few months ago um, on an unrelated topic. I'm on his email list at the prison, so I do occasionally uh, correspond with him. You know, for good or ill, I am his biographer, and I have continuing responsibilities to history to um, understand where the rest of his life leads him, at least psychologically and mentally, to the extent that I can. Are you in touch with Ruth? Um, I have had some conversations with Ruth. Mm -hmm. This is obviously uh, a difficult time for her. I think she has come to understand that through no fault of her own, she has been shackled to this historic fraud. And every time uh, it surfaces, whether through a book or a TV show or a movie or an anniversary, um, she's going to get dragged back out into the spotlight again. Um, She's an incredibly resilient woman. Her grandchildren are a source of great comfort. She um, has found ways to to fill her life, but... um, And and by the way, everyone should know that she has no money. I mean, everything got clawed back. Yes. She is on an allowance, basically, from the trustee pending the settlement of the litigation that he has filed against her. A settlement with the Justice Department left her with two and a half million dollars. Which is not chump change. Not chump change. Uh, You could buy an annuity with it and maybe live off the income of that annuity in an earlier interest rate environment, Mm -hmm. but not now. Mm. So she was left with two and a half million dollars. And then the trustee promptly sued her for forty four million dollars, which she transparently doesn't have. That litigation is still pending settlement. And when it is ultimately settled, she'll know what, if anything, she has left. But for now, uh, she has to draw money from the trustee with the trustee's approval. So she doesn't own a home. She rents. Uh, Down in Florida? um, No, she's living in Connecticut Uh now uh, to be close to where the grandchildren are Uh more or less centered. Um, She's putting, um, putting one foot in front of the other, getting through the day. Is there anyone in this whole maze of fraud that got away with something that you look back now that you say, "Mm, you know what? They should be in jail. Is there someone you think really eluded the prosecutorial hammer? Well, Jill, it must be said, every Ponzi schemer has a banker who almost never catches him. Mm. You, the only two things you need to run a Ponzi scheme are trust and a bank account. Well, Bernie had trust. And he had a bank account. And if the bankers of the world were more scrupulous about supervising the uses that are made of their bank accounts, there would be fewer Ponzi schemes. They are the best first line of defense against a Ponzi scheme. The cash flow in and out of a Ponzi scheme slush fund is, shall I say, distinctive. Mm. And time and again, the bankers serving Bernie Madoff had their software send off a red flag that something looks odd in this account. And time and again, they made an excuse because it was Bernie. He was a big 
customer. They didn't want to lose that mm. business. Now, that bank ultimately settled a uh, Was that multi- J.P. Morgan? J.P. Morgan. They settled a global uh, and complex uh, civil case with the federal government, uh, paying multi-billion dollar fines. But part of that settlement was for their handling of Bernie Madoff's account. Mm. So I think regulators... Uh, should be more insistent on the responsibility of bankers to police Ponzi schemers. Well, thanks so much for listening. That was so great. Again, that was taped a couple of years back after uh, Diana Henriquez's book, The Wizard of Lies, Bernie Madoff and the Death of Trust was adapted into an HBO movie. Diane has been on the show a few times. She's wonderful. Check out all the great stuff that she writes. It is Sunday, and I like to do this at least once a week. We tell you that our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We are distributed by Cadence 13. As always, please wash your hands, wear your masks, maintain your physical distancing, and put your hands metaphorically on someone's back today. It will make that person feel better, and it will make you feel better. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.